Philippians chapter 2. We're back in Philippians again. It's been a while. And so we will just look at three verses this morning, Lord willing. However, I say that, and the truth of the matter is we're going to look at a lot of verses this morning. We're going to be in the book of Exodus quite a bit. So you may want to mark that when we get there and just realize we're going to be in Exodus as an example to us of the things that are true and as an example of the things that Paul is alluding to here. As you read through here, uh, you might not uh, actually pick up on the fact just by reading it that Paul is going back into the Old Testament and uh, assuming that we would understand uh, by the example of Israel the, sa- the same sins and pits that we can fall into. Uh, may the Lord help us as we do that. And uh, I would just say by way of, um, of just interest, as you read through your Bibles daily and... Um, you might have noticed that uh, two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. Uh, that's certainly not an accident, right? It's done purposely, on purpose, and the Old Testament is profitable. In fact, the Old Testament are the scriptures that the Apostle Paul used as he was preaching to the people in the various places where he went. And so that would be a real keen insight to help us understand that uh, his audience, the Philippians here, would have probably picked up pretty quickly on what he was saying as he talks about murmuring and complaining. And we ought to be able to pick up on it too because we have the word right before us that we can open, study, and see. So, so much of today's message centers around Israel and ancient Israel becomes an example of how to do practically everything wrong. I'm sorry to say. And don't get me wrong. Israel fulfilled the grand purpose for why she was created. Israel was created to bring Messiah into the world, and she did. And uh, that is exactly what was supposed to happen, exactly what did happen. And you'd say, my, my, one of my, my grandson this week called me up. They, they like to call with questions, you know. This was a good one, you know. Little, little Henry, he says... Um, Papa, why didn't Jesus come down from the cross? Ah, right? A five, six-year-old thinking like that? Yeah, absolutely. He could come down from the cross, right? Why didn't he come down from the cross? So I was able to explain to him, of course, the purposes of God, the plans of God. Uh, do you understand? He goes, kind of. <laughs> you know. So, you know, that, that's the way that it often goes here. But Israel uh, did, did actually bring in her purposes, even to the point of uh, g- gaining together with the Romans to crucify the Lord of glory, which uh, we're told in the book of Acts in a sermon that was preached by Peter, that this was ordained by God himself, that this happened. Why? So that we could be saved. He took our sins upon himself. So Israel can serve as a cautionary tale. That's what we look at today. Warnings to us as New Covenant Christians not to follow the too often negative example of ancient Israel. And that's exactly what Paul puts before the Philippians and us in the three verses we look at. Let's just look at them first, and then we'll look at the context. Verse 14, Philippians 2. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. And we're going to see there's some key words there that take us right back into the book of Exodus. But the trouble with translations are that um, they, they take various forms, and these words have various shades of meaning, and it doesn't always come out exactly the same in the Old Testament. And there's another reason, too. Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. You know, that's how that makes it also difficult when you're trying to find the exact wording as such that can actually take you to a passage. But we'll talk about that in a few moments as we get there. Just by way of review. Remember the last time, it's been a, a couple of weeks, we, we looked at the, at we, two weeks before that, we looked at the Carmen Christi, verses um, 5 through 11, and the great song of Christ, and uh, the great way that uh, he uh, came into this world and became an example and gave his life for us. And then verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And as we said, verse 12 showed us the responsibility that we have before the Lord. And verse 13 shows us the first cause of why we believe and how we know. It's the Lord that's done the work, the first work in our hearts. But we can go a little bit further back in context. Let's go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. How's he, how are they going to do that? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and this is basically the theme uh, that we're at in this portion of Philippians, talking about unity and the importance of it. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others, and then let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. You know, you, you read a lot of modern commentators, and it kind of frustrates me a little bit. There's a lot of good things in there, but um, one of the things that I've noticed the modern commentators saying is Philippians seems to have no flow to it. It just kind of jumps around. And I go, huh? <laughs> I see an absolute flow in it. It, it. it makes logical sense. It makes biblical sense. It, it flows just the way it should be. If we understand what Paul's talking about, and obviously this lowliness in mind, that flows right into the Carmen Christi. And then he goes on to, to talk about my beloved. He's always obeyed. And he goes on, and what we'll see today also, another example and warning of disunity and what can happen if we allow Satan or we allow our own selfishness to come in and cause troubles. And go all the way back to verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 27. This sums it up really well, what Paul's talking about. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I don't know how he's going to make it more clear. 
what he's talking about. There's a flow to it. It's absolutely what he's talking about. So let's begin. Today we're in verse 14, 15, and 16. Verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Oh, parents, how often have you paraphrased that verse to your kids? You know, tell them to do something, and here comes the murmuring, here comes the complaining, here comes the disputing. You know, uh, why should I have to do that? How come I'm the one that has to do everything around here and murmur, murmur, complain, complain? You know. Well. Maybe your response back isn't always so cheery and helpful as it should be. But, you know, in the scriptures, when we read about murmuring and complaining, it implies moral rebellion against God. And the Israelites in the wilderness are the prime example of moral rebellion against God. And Paul certainly had Israel in mind as he warned the Philippian Christians against this sin of murmuring and complaining. And, um, you know, he doesn't tell them who they're to avoid complaining and disputing with. And he isn't accusing them of complaining against God, not at all. He's warning them, though. And, and really, ultimately, when we are complaining and we are murmuring, ultimately, we're murmuring against the providence of God and what he has done for us and the life that he's given to us. Now, the Philippians weren't complaining against God. They really probably weren't even complaining at all. They're being warned against doing that. And the seeds apparently are there for how that could happen. So their complaints could be against each other. It may be against their leaders. Or their unity could be in jeopardy. Now, you might want to put something there in the Philippians, because we're going to be Uh, in a few scriptures in Exodus. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be in Exodus here for a while. And then we're going to compare a passage in Exodus with um, Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 and see that uh, Paul is actually pulling right out of uh, the Exodus chapter 32 verse 5. But let's work our way there. Exodus chapter 15. Uh, The Israelites murmuring in the wilderness. It's mentioned often in the New Testament. It's even mentioned in the Old Testament quite a bit. And the book of Psalms talks very much about uh, their wilderness wanderings and and, uh, their failures and such like that. And when we come to the book of Acts, we see these great New Testament sermons being preached. As they preach to a Jewish crowd, usually it comes right back to Israel in the wilderness, and such like that. Exodus 15, verse 24 is central, but let's read 23 through 25 around it. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah, which means bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet, and there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. How good it is to have a God in the midst of difficulties. How good it is to trust in God in the midst of difficulties. You know, what did Moses do? The people complain. The people complain. The people complain. 
Moses cried out to the Lord. Moses prayed. Moses believed God. God said that he would take Israel into the promised land, and Moses believed that God would take them there. Later on, we won't turn there today, but you know the story. Later, as they stood on the brink of the promised land, ready to enter in, they send in the spies. The spies give an evil report, and the people's heart grow faint, and they say that God is not able to take us into this land. The enemies are too strong, too powerful. They don't say it in words, but they say too powerful for God. It's what they actually mean. The Bible says they murmured ten times. Now, you don't really need to take your Bible and count how many times they murmured. That, that's not the point here. When they murmured ten times means over and over and over and over again. Moses prayed. He had a place to turn. He cried out to God. And God provided water for them in the desert in a miraculous way. What's verse 14 say, Philippians? Well, I'll just read it to you again. Do all things without complaining and disputing or arguing. And what Paul implies is the sin of Israel was questioning the providence of God. You could even say questioning the power of God to do what he said that he would do. Now turn to Exodus 16. And we'll just read verses, uh, well, let's read verses 2 through 8 here. 7 through 9, or 7 through 8, really, is where we're, we're centering in on. Uh, Exodus 16, let's start in verse 2. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, get this, this is such a foolish thing to say. You ever find yourself saying foolish things? And thinking foolish things. Uh, yeah, we're made of the same stuff, aren't we? It's easy to point fingers today and say, oh, Israel, you know, if I were in the wilderness, I would never do such a thing as that. Okay. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord. Oh, really? That's what you want? <laughs> oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full for you, talking to Moses, have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh yeah, if only we could be slaves again. <laughs> if only we could be tormented by the Egyptians, beaten with rods when we don't make the bricks enough. Oh, those were the good old days, you know. <laughs> well, there you go. Die of thirst but they didn't. Die of hunger? They wouldn't. Isn't God able to prepare a table in the midst of the wilderness? That's what the psalmist says. And he's using this as an example as he asked that very question. And it's important for you and I to answer that question too because sometimes life gets tough. Sometimes things are difficult. Uh, there have been times I've, I've really never gone hungry in my life and God's been good in that way. But there have been times, uh, my, my parents can tell you, my mom can tell you, there are times that the cupboards were bare. But we never went hungry. God was merciful, you know. And, um, you know, well, let me go on reading. Here's the answer, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I'll rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. Here's another testing. And it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Okay, notice that. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. He hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? How can we provide food for you? You're really complaining against the one that can provide food. And Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaint which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now you think about what happened, because you know this story. And uh, it would be too much to read, but uh, you, know, you, know the, you know the account and, and the truth of it. The food was given to them every day. Now, the food was given to them up until the time they came to the promised land. They refused to go in. God could have easily said, okay, well, food's gone. Didn't do what you're supposed to do. Food's cut off. You're done for. That's not what God did. God in his mercy and grace fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. Even though they sinned so grievously they couldn't go in. God fed them for 40 years. And yet you notice that when they actually did go in 40 years later, the day that they went in is the day the manna stopped. And there was no longer any manna because now they had the regular provision of how to eat. But, you know, for 40 years, there was a daily miracle. Every single day. But God being wise... And God's word coming together, the way this daily miracle worked was quite incredible. Because what would happen is, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, there would be manna on the ground. If there was manna on the ground every single day, including Saturday, people would just say, well, there's something about this desert that's really unlike any other place on earth. It grows its own food every single day. But do you notice in the wisdom of God, the providence of God, and in the entire plan of God, for six days the manna would fall. A daily miracle, and there was another miracle. On the seventh day, nothing. It wasn't out there. Which was a stark reminder that the Sabbath is a rest. A, a cessation of from normal activity. It was a rest. There's no man out there. And of course, uh, they said, well, when people go hungry, you know, well, in our day, people do intermittent fasting sometimes as a, a way to lose weight. I've thought about it. I haven't done it yet. Um, you can exhort me to do it, maybe. But, um, you know, that wasn't what the deal was. What the deal was, on the sixth day, you gather twice as much. And you store it. And you eat it on the Sabbath day, and it'll be fine. But you know what happened? Sometimes on Tuesday, the guy said, you know, it's getting kind of tedious going out there and gathering this manna every day. 
So why don't I just uh, get twice as much and I can take the day off tomorrow? Call in sick, you know. <laughs> well, what would happen is worms and maggots would infest the manna. You say, well, I'm not so sure. I want to take twice as much on Friday. No, look at worms and maggots. That's a gross and terrible, terrible thing. Okay. So you don't gather twice as much, and what's going to happen? But if you trust the Lord and believe in the Lord, you gather twice as much. And guess what? On the Sabbath day, no worms, no maggots. This is God. That's what we're talking about. A daily miracle for 40 straight years. It would be easy to expect it if it came every single day. But there was a change. And that just shows the power of God. Well, it's easy to complain against God and his ways. They'd even later complain about the manna. But let's remember that complaining is the precursor to rebellion. And discontent is exactly the opposite. Discontented is not what we should be. You have an outline, and on the back of your outline... I think No, it's on the front, on the front of your outline. Paul says this to the Corinthians. You can just look at your outline without having to turn away from Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10.10 Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then the reason I picked that passage is, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, if you would, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 32. And as you do that, you would you'd be well-versed to also keep a finger, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. For this is what we're talking about. This is, this is actually where it all comes together. And we can see not only the example that he says in 1 Corinthians, but uh, the example, the very verbiage that he uses here uh, to help the Philippians and us to understand. Deuteronomy 32 and verse, let's read verses 3 through 6. Verse 5 is where we're centering in. Verse 3. So all the people, oops, I'm in Exodus. Give me a moment to get to Deuteronomy. That was immediately very obvious to me. It wasn't right. <laughs> Here we go. Deuteronomy 32. And actually, there's a, a misprint, I believe, in your... Yeah, there's a misprint here in your outline, too. It says Deuteronomy 3, 5. No, it's 32, 5. Deuteronomy 32, 5 is, is where we're at. Okay. So, 32, 3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, He's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They've corrupted themselves, verse 5. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with me, 
the Lord, or do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish unwise people? Is he not your father who brought you, who bought you, and has not made you? He has not made at you and established you. There we go. wasn't very good reading, but it's good. It's good material. <laughs> okay. It's not really obvious, not totally obvious in our English translations. But uh, the Apostle Paul appears to be quoting, or probably reciting from memory, paraphrasing, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the the Septuagint. And uh, one of our church members bought me a a copy of the Septuagint uh, many years ago. Used it quite a bit, because I know Greek better than I know Hebrew. And so I was looking this passage up, and it's very obvious in the words that were being used uh, that uh, he is alluding to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And whatever translation you have, they'll use different words, but it comes out to, to be very much the same. Uh, as it says here in 32, 5, they've corrupted themselves. They're not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. They've, corrupt, they've corrupted themselves. But then Paul says in 2.15, but you be blameless and harmless. Harmless is another word for innocent. Don't be like that. Be blameless. Be innocent. They are not his children. That's a pretty shocking thing to say about the people in the wilderness. But you are the children of God, it says in 2.15. They're blemished. Now, that's a more obscure word in Hebrew I'm trying to look it up in Hebrew. It's a more obscure word, but a spot, um, marred, you know. Um, but you be without fault. They're a perverse and crooked generation. But you, Philippians, live in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation, shining as lights in the world. And there you go. Israel's called a perverse and wicked generation. That's not uncommon. Because what we actually have is there were true believers in Israel, true believers that looked to him, true believers that trusted in him. Good example, just a a biblical example. Just think about the 12 tribes that go into the promised land. Two tribes, or two of the, the men of the tribes, believed in God. Ten of them did not believe. Okay, You could say those two were a remnant from the tribes, the smaller portion of the whole. And that's the way that God works throughout the Old Testament. He always has a people. Sometimes there's not very many of them. Sometimes they're doing better. Sometimes they look like they're doing good. But we know they're not doing so good because when circumstances change or a new king comes in or something like that happens, immediately they go into idolatry once again. But God always had a faithful remnant of those that believed in him. And that's still happening today. Not all were Israel that are of Israel. But we have the privilege of being a remnant to God from all the peoples in the world. Not just a Jewish remnant from a Jewish nation, but a Christian people from the entire world without ethnicity being considered 
without national barriers being considered, without any of these things, God's people, sometimes they're in countries that uh, there's more of them, sometimes in they're in countries that if there are few of them, sometimes they're in countries where they're being persecuted. But God always has a people. And the rest of the world, what is it? Perverse and crooked. So are you surprised when you mistakenly watch the evening news? Because <laughs> it ain't going to make you feel good. <laughs> okay. Are you surprised when you see what's going on? It's nothing new. just gets a little more publicity because we've got TVs and, and news outlets and things like that. You know, a little easier to, to see. It comes into our living rooms in ways that it didn't before. You know? No. Perverse and wicked. And such were all of us. But God, by his grace, takes the perverse and wicked, pulls them out, and brings them to himself, and makes us to be that remnant in the midst of a perverse and wicked world. He changes us, and that's to his glory. Remember what Paul wrote? Philippians 1.27 only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And again in 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That contrasts with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 31.27. Um, let me see if it's on your outline or I'll read it to you. It is there on your outline. Deuteronomy 31, 27, the words of Moses, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? That's pretty shocking. No. No, in other words, if this is the way you act while I'm with you, giving you the very word of God, What's going to happen when I'm gone? Well, thankfully, it, it wasn't all up to Moses. Thankfully, whether it wasn't going to be whether Moses was alive or not. It was whether God was going to work or not. And God had a man, raised up Joshua, and, and took Moses' place. Uh, just an aside there, it, I'm not saying Moses was saying this or believing this, but none of us are irreplaceable. That's, that's something we need to realize. We're not irreplaceable. You know, and, and must, we must never think that we are. We must never get to that point. You know, God will do his work, and God will do his work in his way. But these are sad words that Moses has to say to people that he put up with for 40 years. It was very, very true. You know, I know your rebellion. I know you're stiff-necked. And how many times do you see that throughout the Old Testament? A stiff-necked people. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself says these words. Um, so, but I didn't put it in my notes, so I can't remember exactly where in Matthew it is. I think it's 717, but it could be wrong. That's just by, by memory. So, anyway, but we know the Lord Jesus Christ said words almost exactly like that himself to the people he was talking to. Moses couldn't trust his people. He watched them rebel and sin over and over again. Paul did trust the Philippians. He watched them obey over and over again. 
But Paul knew that the seeds of their own disintegration lay within them. So he warns them against murmuring and complaining. You know. Well, there's ways that the New Testament church, the people of God, differs from the Old Testament. You know. There, there's a lot of ways we can mention, but I just put a few down there for you. Uh, we see very little evangelistic effort um, outside of Israel in the Old Testament. We're in our day of grace and this age, the gospel is to go forth into all the world. And the church, sometimes she is and sometimes she's not. But the church should be aggressively evangelistic into the Gentile world. It's one of the reasons that we support missions as we do. We'll be taking a missions offering at the end of this month. And it's important. And you can say, well, you know, couldn't we use that money for other purposes? We couldn't use it for better purposes, right? I mean, so that's why we give to missions, so, the, so that the gospel can go forth. In the Old Testament, we see a mixed multitude. The church in the wilderness was a mixed multitude with the majority of them not knowing the Lord. But the New Testament church is not like this. I won't turn you there, because we've gone there many times, but Jeremiah 31, 31, and then the next few verses are so foundational and so important. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with Jeremiah 31, 31, I want you to look it up later, because you need to know that, all the way through verse 34. We all know the Lord, from the least of us to the greatest of us, the one thing we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know him. And he said, well, aren't there false professors in the church? Well, in the church universal, there isn't. In local churches, yes, there are. But local churches have been given away by God to, to handle that situation. It's called church discipline. And so we work in church discipline to, to weed out those that truly do not know him or to warn those that do. But um, all true believers know the Lord, and um, we become that great remnant from the world. They lived in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. We live in the realization that he's already come. They lived in hope of the promises to come. We live in hope of the end of the world and the end of the ages through the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel fulfilled her purpose. The church is fulfilling her purpose. And then, just in closing, back to Philippians, that you may become blameless and harmless, verse 15, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. And you can see Paul kind of putting himself in the Moses place here, you know, because he is a leader and he is the theologian of the church. And uh, he loves them, he cares for them, he wants to see them progress all the way to heaven, and he's confident that they will. But Paul lists five of the reasons right here. I've already touched on them, but I'll, I'll do it again. Blameless and harmless, or blameless as innocent. And he uses the word blameless again in, in chapter 3, verse 6. 
concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. In Paul's own mind, before he knew Christ, he was blameless because he thought he was keeping the law. But he was helping to, to murder Christians. But Christians deserve to be murdered. Yeah, that's the way Paul was looking at it before he came to Christ. It's one of the reasons also, too, in God's grace, that Paul was able to endure such suffering as he did without being bitter, without complaining, and without uh, really just lashing out at his enemies, basically. Because he tells, you know, when, when um, Ananias came to him and Paul's blindness was removed, the Lord said to Ananias, for I must show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Paul had the ministry of suffering, and he did. And he went to jail, and he was beaten sometimes, and always treated unjustly. But you know what? Paul realized, I did that. I did that, and look what God did for me. I was like that, and look what God did for me. And he had a proper attitude about things instead of a, a hateful attitude towards his persecutors. You know. Upright is the more common English word that we see that carries the same idea when it describes true saints. Blameless and harmless, they go together. Blameless and innocent. Uh, pure in the sense of unmixed and untainted. And then children of God. Being children of God presupposes that God is our Father. It wasn't an unknown concept in the Old Testament. God calls himself a father of the fatherless. God is a father to the nation of Israel. God is the father of Messiah. And the father is the term that Jesus used most often when he was speaking about God. So the Old Testament saints realized their relationship with one another through birth and through their God. New Testament saints recognize our relationship with one another through the new birth and by having the same father as one another. Without fault, we've already talked about blemish in 32.5, Lights in the world. The world was a dark place. One little spot of light in the nation of Israel. Heathen darkness encircled the globe. Given over to, to doctrines of demons. Now in the New Testament, the gospel goes forth into all the world. And holding fast the word of life. You know, the prophets, with only a few exceptions, were sent to Israel. God committed his word to them and they faithfully preserved it. Now his word is committed to us. No new revelation. Nothing new. You know, the only things that are new are false. You know, we use the word of God, the revelation, the completed revelation of God. His word committed to us. Committed for us to preach it. Committed for us to teach it. Committed for us to speak it to one another and speak it to the lost and, well, to live it, of course. Then you're going to speak it if you're not going to live it. We are to be shining examples in the world by the word we give and the testimony that we live. So let me just close with this. And um, thank you for your kind attention. Whether... You're in the Old Testament reading. Understand that Christ is the focus. If you're in the New Testament reading, understand that Christ 
is the focus. And if that's the case, and it is, and if that's what's really important, and it is, then I have to ask you, do you know him? Do you believe in him? When I say, do you believe in him, I'm actually saying, do you trust in him? It's one thing to know, oh, yeah, I know, the, I know Jesus. I know, I know there was a Jesus, you know. Do you trust in him? Do you have faith in him? All these things come together as being vital to put our heart and our life together in him. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. No other name, no other way of salvation, no other road to heaven. Believe me, lost people think that that's unfair. Why is it unfair? Come to Christ. He said to come. Come to Christ. If you reject Christ, you reject God's own precious son. You reject the only way that God has made for men and women and children to be reconciled to God. So I beg you to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent of your sins. He will give you new life. And all the promises that apply to the Old Testament, and all the promises that apply to the New Testament, the ones that belong to us, well, they'll apply to you for all eternity. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a unified whole, because it has a unified message. There's so many things that could have been written, so many things that could have been said. The Apostle John tells us that if if all the things Jesus did in his three-year ministry were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that could be written and should be written. But Lord, you've written a compact book, a unified book, a true book, a word from you to us. I pray, Lord, if there be any that do not believe that are here today, unbelievers. Lord, I used to be an unbeliever. Everyone in here that's a Christian used to be an unbeliever. But we thank you that you opened our heart and you opened our ears and you opened our eyes. Do it again, Lord, we pray. To the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, do it again. And may Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray, amen.